Good morning, everyone. This is Pastor John, and it is Palm Sunday 2020. This morning's audio online service is a communion service, and we invite you to prepare elements for that. Even though we are separated, you can gather those things together in your own home and join us as this is Palm Sunday, and we are preparing our hearts for Easter. This morning we want to celebrate and proclaim the Lord's death. Next Sunday we want to celebrate His resurrection. So go ahead and keep the elements of the Lord's Supper before you, and we will share in communion at the end of this audio. During the service this morning, we'll hear from our leadership team, Tom Black and Dave Ford. In 1 Corinthians 10, beginning with verse 16, the Apostle Paul reminds the Corinthians the real significance of the celebration of the Lord's Supper. He writes, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one loaf. We are separated by necessity in this situation that we find ourselves, but our fellowship, our communion, our participation, those are different translations of the word participation that I just read, That's where the word communion comes from. It reminds us that we have a relationship with one another that is eternal because that relationship is not just among us. It is through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And because of that, even though we are temporarily separated from one another and are unable to gather in each other's presence, we are still connected through Christ. We are still one loaf, as Paul says. We are still one body. And as we take communion, let us remind ourselves that that reality exists even when we are not in one another's company. This morning, the text that I would like to read from is John chapter 6, starting in verse 28. And the people said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he sent. Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger and he who believes in me shall never thirst. And then I'd like to skip down to verse 41. And the Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? 
How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which come down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. And the Jews therefore quarreled among themselves saying, how can this man give us flesh, his flesh to eat? And then Jesus replied, most assuredly I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. And I believe that Jesus is talking in a figurative way of his body and his blood in a way that if you follow him, if you become a believer and you follow him, that you will have eternal life. What is a covenant? Well, base, basically, it's the terms of an agreement. So what are the terms of an agreement with your coffee shop? The coffee shop might say to you, if you download our app and let us have our app on your phone, then you can order online through our app, give us exactly the, the kind of coffee you want, then we will put that coffee on the counter for you and you don't have to stand in line. You can grab it and go because you've already paid. Here's your coffee. That is so impersonal and trivial. It's really not a covenant. It's a contract uh, on your smartphones or even on your computers. When you start using this technology, you have to read and agree with the, the privacy terms the privacy policy of the company. If you want to use our technology, then you have to allow us to know everything about you and possibly sell it to other companies or allow us to promise more privacy but give us the opportunity to advertise to you. So there's an exchange. There's the terms of an agreement. You have to read the terms of the privacy policy and click that box before you can go on. You're entering into a relationship. The tech company gets something out of it, namely they know everything about you and can sell you stuff based on that knowledge, or they can sell their knowledge of you to somebody else. It depends on the terms of the agreement. But you get access to the world. And so it's a trade-off, and there are terms. And if you violate the terms of the agreement, then that relationship could be terminated. But what happens if you go from an app to a privacy agreement, and then you go to something more like a constitution of a country where people say, here are our laws. We're going to enter into an agreement to one, with one another about how we're going to behave. And if we behave this way, the government behaves that way. That gets a little more serious. What if you get into a marriage where there are vows exchanged in the most personal relationship possible? That becomes a covenant. 
And it used to be that we would vow that we would remain faithful to one another till death do us part. So what are the terms of the relationship with God? So God says, I'm going to enter into a relationship with man. But there are terms to that covenant because God has a certain nature and we have a certain nature. So what was the old covenant? The old covenant in the scriptures is the Mosaic law. It's when God took Israel out of Egypt. He selected the Jews as his special people. They were chosen and he says, I'm going to enter into a relationship with you. So they gathered at Mount Sinai. The king of the universe enters into a relationship with his people, and there were terms to that relationship. Uh, notably, most notably, the Ten Commandments are at the core of that, as well as the sacrificial system, the priesthood, and everything else that goes with it. And so God says, here's the terms of the relationship, and then the people said, we'll, we'll enter into that. An example of that is found in Exodus chapter 19. Verse 3, And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, these are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words, in other words, the terms of the relationship, the terms of the covenant, which the Lord commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They checked the box, which is really a shallow way of explaining it, but they committed to this relationship. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said, Behold, I come to you in the thick of the cloud. And Israel enters into that relationship. That's the Old Covenant. The problem with the Old Covenant, though, is that it was external. It was hammered in on tablets of stone. It was based on their obedience. It was a conditional covenant. If Israel kept the terms of the covenant, then they would be God's special nation if they violated the terms, especially through idolatry, then the relationship could be terminated. And that's exactly what happened centuries later when God allowed Israel to be taken captive and Judah especially into the Babylonian captivity. They couldn't live up to the covenant. It was too demanding. It was based on their obedience. It was a law outside of them written on stone. Nobody could live up to it. Nobody could live up to the terms that are necessary to enter into a relationship with God. And we needed to see that failure. That's the old covenant. But what's the new covenant? God sent a prophet to Israel, and he says, I'm going to enter into a new covenant with you someday. That was the prophet Jeremiah. And you can read about the, new, the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. That's how we know what the old covenant was. It was when they left Egypt under the Mosaic leadership. He says, my covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. So God is saying, I lived up to my terms. I lived up to my, my promises, but Israel did not live up to theirs. But this 
is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds, not just carved out of stone, but I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. The law will not be something outside of us that we have to attain to by our own obedience. It will actually become our primary software. It will become the operating system of our souls on the inside. And he says, I will be their God and they will be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Even under the time of the old covenant, God promises a new one, a better one. It will be a covenant that will be better than the other one. It will be internal. It will be one that solves the question of sin. God will once and for all deal with sin. So what is the new covenant now? Well, Dave read about it in John chapter 6. Jesus is talking about it. He's talking about the bread of life and being the bread of life. But he said, you have to eat my flesh and you have to drink my blood. This is the covenant coming internally into us on terms of his own sacrifice. We take it in and the metaphor there is eating and drinking. Eat his flesh and drink his blood. The terms here seemed very strange to the ears of the audience. So the people were saying, this sounds weird. How can you be the one? Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. This is a hint at the new covenant. No one will have to be told outside of themselves, know the Lord, because God Himself will lead us to Christ and be our own, be our teacher. By the time we get to the institution of the Lord's Supper, this is what Jesus is talking about. He says, This is the new covenant in my blood. So the new covenant will be based on somebody who has already lived up to the terms of the old covenant. Jesus lived up to everything and all the terms of the old covenant. And he says, I will then allow you on the basis of my obedience, not yours. I will allow you on the basis of my performance, not yours, to enter into a relationship with God if you'll just receive it as a gift by faith. That's why it's a covenant of grace and not of works. That's why it's a covenant of faith and not of performance. And when we take the Lord's Supper, we are celebrating somebody other than us, somebody who has lived up to the terms of the covenant for us, on our behalf, and then gives us that relationship as a free gift. But it costs so much. It costs the breaking of his body. It costs the shedding of his blood. And that's why Barclay does call this a covenant of love. One of the key passages in the New Testament where Jesus establishes the new covenant and establishes the Lord's Supper or communion as a as an ordinance of the church is found in Mark chapter 14, 22 to 25. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. 
Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. In the passage that Dave read earlier in John 6, Jesus emphasizes, he said, For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. It is indeed something to take in. There is something real about it. Even though it's a metaphor, it's a spiritual reality. The symbol is pointing to a spiritual reality that when we take the bread and we take the wine in, we're taking in spiritual life and spiritual sustenance. When Jesus knew in himself that the disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? All the talk about eating flesh and drinking blood, does that offend you? He says, what then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? He said, I'm talking about spiritual realities. I'm talking about heavenly things. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. So the fleshly realities of the bread and the wine are pointing to a spiritual life that comes to us by faith and they're important reminders. And as the Puritan said, they are signs representing to the eyes what which the word doth represent to the ears. So if you are not a Christian, the mere taking of communion as a ceremony, eating bread and drinking wine, will not make you a Christian. The bread and the wine that are before us are symbols, they're reminders, they're taking, it's a, it's a step of obedience and a way of being blessed after having become a Christian to remind us of what Jesus did. The way we become Christians is we take in the gospel message that Jesus died for us and rose for us to cleanse us of our sins. We take that message in by faith and the ceremony of the Lord's Supper is a symbolic remembrance of what that means and what that is. But we are saved by faith not by religious ceremonies. But the religious ceremony that Jesus gave us, they're so important and they're filled with meaning. But I think too that the lesson here is that nobody else can eat or drink for you. Family, friends, colleagues, your church cannot mediate to you the life of God. Everyone can hope and pray that you'll come to Christ, but in the end you must do your own eating. In the end you must take Christ in by faith. And then the Lord's Supper is a picture of what that means and a reminder afterwards. But this also reminds us of the fulfilling nature of the new covenant. We are taking life in, not only to be born again, but to walk with the Lord, constantly experiencing for us what the gospel means. The gospel is not just the entry into the kingdom, it is the kingdom, the death, burial, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because what you take in becomes a part of you. You want the theology to affect your psychology. You want the theology to become experience. Jesus is saying, my body, my blood, they are food indeed. In other words, my sacrifice for you is a life-giving experience. In the book, Mere Christianity, the third chapter is entitled, The Shocking Alternative. And the writer here gives a great message about the life-giving nature of the gospel. And what that is, is joy, we might use the word happiness, but it goes deeper than that. Listen to what he said. What Satan put into the heads of our remote ancestors was the idea that they could be like gods, could set up on their own as if they had created themselves, be their own masters, 
invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside God, apart from God, and out of that hopeless attempt has come nearly all that we call human history. Money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery, the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. The reason why it can never succeed is this. God made us, invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol. He's a British writer. And it would not run properly on anything else. Now God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us a happiness and a peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. That's why Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Now as we take communion together and gather the bread and the wine before us, let me read from what Paul wrote to the church at Corinthians. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Tom Black will come and pray over the bread. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this celebration that our Lord Jesus Christ has given to us to remind us of what he's done for us. And not only just that, as we gather in fellowship through him, regardless of the fact that we are separated, as we gather, he is with us corporately and individually. We thank you for that. We thank you for the fact that he gave up his body. He gave up everything out of pure love and obedience to his heavenly father that we also might be in his family eternally. In Jesus' name. Now let us take the bread and eat it in remembrance of him. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Dave Ford will pray over the cup. Father, as this wine is a symbol of Jesus' blood that was shed for us, I thank you for the symbolism. I thank you for this right that we have as believers to come, whether it's in church or whether it's at home, Wherever we're at, we are, we are yours. And we have the ability to celebrate that fact by the act of communion. Bless this time together, even though we're physically apart, but we're together in spirit. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let us take the cup and drink it in remembrance of him. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. And we say, Amen. Amen.